0: Good morning. My name is Craig, and I'm now wearing my microphone. I am the senior pastor here, and it is my privilege to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, thank you so much. Uh, If you are or are not a guest, those of you that were here last week, I was not here. We uh, snuck away for a little while, just me and Angela. We ditched the kids and had a weekend to ourselves and had a really good time. We love the kids. They're great. we were just happy to be rid of them. But... um, uh, Appreciate um, everybody else taking care of things while we were away. Kevin did a great job with the sermon last week. We may make reference to that a couple of times this morning. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah stomped his foot and said, yes, it is. Sort of, right? Father, give us the heart of God. Give us the compassion of God. And Lord God, I pray today that you would bend our wills into conformity with yours, that we would trust you because you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for being here on this Veterans Day weekend. We do want to honor our veterans. Um, we uh, This year marked the 75th anniversary of D-Day, a, a day that lives in infamy as the day that caught the Germans off guard and broke the backs of the Nazis. Now we know that World War II wasn't won on D-Day, but in many ways it was finished on D-Day and we only awaited the time when the Allied forces would eventually overcome completely. We want to honor our veterans, but even as we honor those of you who have served, we acknowledge that your sacrifices as veterans has actually made it possible for the rest of us to live lives as free Americans. We know the American way of life as it is known today because so many of you were willing to sacrifice. Those of you who are with us were willing to sacrifice your time, willing to sacrifice all sorts of opportunities so that you could serve your country and secure for us freedoms. Others, of course, gave much greater sacrifices. I would encourage you, perhaps in honor of Veterans Day or or this time, perhaps to read a book or, or, or watch a documentary about some of the things that our soldiers go through. Alex Kershaw wrote a pretty good book this year called The First Wave, which is in honor of the seventy-fifth anniversary of D-Day that just recounts not only the, the experience of those of, of the actual attack and of, of the actual but actually deals with individual lives that were affected. Sometimes we can look at, at an army and forget that an army is made up of individual people. He recounts the lives of two Canadians, brothers, the only brothers that are known of to have landed on D-Day, each leading their own company. One of whom was wounded on the beach. His brother thought he was dead. He was received news from the front that his brother had been killed in battle. His brother continued to fight on, was later wounded in battle. And was taken to a hospital in England. And there in the hospital in England, he was found in the hallway. And the nurse reprimanded him for being out of his room. He said, ma'am, I just got here. She said, I'm not putting up with your mess. I'm taking you back to your room. And she wheeled him down the hallway into the room. And there was someone in his bed. And she said, who are you? He said, I'm Colonel Dalton. She said, no, you're not because he's right here. And he sat up. And there the two brothers were reunited in a hospital and discovered that they both had survived the day. Our veterans have experienced things that most of us can't even imagine, and I appreciate all that you've done to secure the freedoms that we have as Americans. But not everything we do as Americans is great, is it? We are a practical people. As Americans, we like things that work. We like lists. Now I've got a book that I brought up here with me, and it's called "Lists to Live By." I'm convinced that this book only works in 21st century America. Well, it was probably written in, in the 20th century, but only in America. This is an American book. It's practical, concise, and immediately actionable. Everything about this book says, "Do it right now." I don't even know where I got this book. Just for the I, I can't believe I, I must have picked it up at a used book sale, or somebody gave it. This is not a book I would have paid more than a quarter for. But when they do that Friends of the Library book sale every year, just in case you didn't know that, you can buy books for a quarter. And as a pastor, occasionally I walk through and I go, huh, I'll give a quarter for that because there might be an illustration in it. This book's terrible. <laughs> but it contains all sorts of lists. Let me read. I, mean, I just can't imagine this laying on my bedside table and rolling over and going, let me enjoy this. Let me, let me read some of these to you. Lists with titles like Danger Signals of Stress. Parenting 101. Conversation starters. How about this one? Nursing home checklist. Some of you might want a copy of that. And how to prepare for disasters. This is an American book, right? I can read it quickly because I don't have time to contemplate, heaven forbid we think. I can put it into action immediately. It's practical and to the point. We are practical. We like things that work and work well. We like football coaches that can coach, receivers who can catch, cars that start, microwaves that work, and we like sermons that give us immediate application. And that's why in America we have entire books of lists. Folks, I want you to know this sermon today is not very American. And what I mean by that is this this sermon is not immediately practical or actionable. You won't get 10 rules to live by or Parenting 101. You certainly won't get a nursing home checklist out of this sermon. As a matter of fact, the book of Jonah doesn't end with six ways to have your best life tomorrow or 17 ways to make your wife happy. Instead, this sermon is a reminder to all of us that God is God and we are not. This sermon is a reminder that God is sovereign over the affairs of man and that we can and should trust Him. This is our fourth week in Jonah and I believe that at the beginning of Jonah 4, we actually find Jonah in the worst state of any other part of the book. Now, Jonah 1, Jonah doesn't begin in a good place, does it? Jonah hears a word from the Lord, and Jonah says, I'm not going to do that. He runs entirely the opposite way. We made it to Jonah 2, and Jonah's on a boat getting as far away from God as he can, and he finds out that he can't actually outrun God. any of you ever tried to run from God and found out you only ran right into him? He couldn't get away from him. Right? And so, you know the story. He looks at the other sailors. and says, Look, the only hope you have is to get rid of me. Y'all throw me over Maybe something good will happen. They throw him out. He thinks he's drowning. He cries out to the Lord. Isn't it amazing that the Bible says that the seaweed was beginning to wrap around his head before he finally cried out to the Lord. Jonah had to get not only to the end of his rope, he had to get all the way to the bottom of the ocean before he was willing to say, God, help me. How many of you have made it so far down that you could see the underside of a, belly, of a whale before you finally cried out and said, God, help me save me. You know the incredible thing? Even when you're looking up at the underside of a whale, God can still bring you from there and put you on top of wherever He wants you to be. So anyway, you know the story. God appoints a fish. And the fish swallows Jonah. And there inside the fish, Jonah prays. And Jonah prays and he gives praise to the Lord, which is unbelievable. Jonah is a great theologian. He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows God's Word. Pastor Kevin preached to you last week in Jonah chapter 3. The Bible says the fish spit him out, and then Jonah went. You got these sandwiches, I believe is what Kevin said last week. We've got the parallelism at Jonah 1 and 3, and then Jonah 2 and 4. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, a God of second chances. Now we, of course, know that he's not only a God of second chances, but of third and fourth and fifth. And folks, for some of us, who knows how many chances the Lord has given to us. What an incredible blessing it is. But God doesn't give Jonah a lecture. God says, Jonah, go. Reminds me a lot of Jesus' words to the woman at the well. He doesn't say, hey, you go and, and do this, and, and you don't tell them a whole lot. No, no, Jesus says, you go, and you tell them you met me. I will be known by you. You can tell them that you are a friend of Jesus. God says, Jonah, you've messed up, but you're still mine. i got a job for you. When you've messed up, God may still have a job for you. Don't miss that. God's not finished. So, Jonah chapter 3, God, Jonah goes, he hears the word of the Lord and begrudgingly he obeys. Now, remember, we've talked about this. We don't know where the fish spit Jonah out at, but it probably what well, let me back up. We know it wasn't at the walls of Nineveh, remember? Nineveh's in the middle of a desert. Jonah had to still get there. He had to deal with his disobedience. He goes and he preaches, an incredible thing happens. I loved what Kevin said last week. He said, God made it to Nineveh before Jonah's message did. And Jonah preached a simple message of repentance. And when Jonah preached a simple message of repentance, the Bible says that the people were pricked to their heart and that they repented of their sin. And that brings us all the way to Jonah chapter 4. And in Jonah chapter 4, we find that Jonah is angry. While it's true that the first chapter sees Jonah running from God, the fourth chapter here really catches Jonah something far uglier. Jonah has become the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He's obeyed God, he's done what God wanted, but he didn't do it willingly, and he didn't do it with a heart of love for the Lord. Jonah was the angry son cleaning his room and slinging and griping and moaning. And crying and yelling the entire time. Jonah preached God's message, and then Jonah got mad. And why did Jonah get mad? Jonah got mad because God did what Jonah knew that that God could and would do. Jonah was mad, but he wasn't just mad. I want us to consider the way that a few of our English translations handle this passage. The NIV says, "But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry." Now, by the way, the, the this that seems wrong is that God had forgiven Nineveh, okay? The, uh, the New Living Translation says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. The ESV that we've already read from says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Another version says, Jonah, however, was greatly displeased, and he became angry. The NASB says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And on and on and so forth. The CSB says Jonah was greatly displeased and he became furious. Folks, I I want you to know that sometimes the English translators of our Bible write these things in a way that helps us to understand it. But, But sometimes in the translations, it seems as though it might actually get toned down a little bit. Literally, in the Hebrew here, and some of your Bibles have a footnote that says this, that, Jonah, that to Jonah, the thing that God did seemed evil. Literally. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. In other words, but Jonah fe- felt that God's actions were evil and Jonah became exceedingly angry. What does exceedingly angry mean? This is throwing the coffee pot mad, folks. This is angry. This is furious. This is mad. This is stomping, snorting, screaming mad. So the next time you're upset, just say to your spouse, I was exceedingly angry. They'll know exactly what you mean. Of course, I've met some of your spouses. You won't have to guess if they're exceedingly angry. That was a joke. Folks, Jonah was so consumed with his nationalistic pride that he couldn't celebrate the grace and the mercy of God. He so hated the people of Nineveh that he was willing to say that it was evil of God to do what God had done. Jonah was furious because God had acted with mercy and compassion. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen God act in a way that didn't fit with your preconceived notions of how God was supposed to act? Let me urge you to remember this this morning. He is God and you are not. Folks, there's three things I want us to see in this passage of Scripture. And then we're going to bring it all together at the end. The first thing I want you to keep in mind is that God doesn't need your permission. God doesn't need your permission. Jonah liked God. Jonah liked speaking for God as long as God did what Jonah, or as long as God said what Jonah wanted him to say. Any of you been reading the Bible before and went, Oh, I don't like that part. Let's skip on past it. I know you all haven't, but I've heard that there's some people that do that. As long as God did what Jonah wanted him to do, Jonah thought God was cool. He was great. I want to be in his service. However, the minute that God did the very thing that Jonah didn't want him to do, Jonah became angry. And as we just saw, more than just angry, he was stomping, snorting mad. He was furious with the Lord. Isaiah 5.20 warns us, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Jonah needed to hear the words of Isaiah. Woe, Jonah! Jonah was charging God with evil. Have you ever charged God with evil? Perhaps you're angry with God today because of something that's happened in your life. Maybe you didn't like it. You don't like it when the Bible says forgive. You don't like it when God says that you have to forgive. You don't like that part. You don't like it when God says that you've got to behave in a certain way. You don't like it when the Bible says that you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. You don't like it when the Bible says that marriage is a sacred union to be protected and honored. You don't like those things. No, you probably didn't have the guts to come out and say that God was wrong or that God was evil. You acted like our Bible translators. You toned it down and interpreted it for the world around you. You weren't furious. You were just displeased and exceedingly angry. Of course, generally in our displeasure and exceeding anger with the Lord, most of us handle it in the way that many, unfortunately many of you and and many Unhealthy couples handle anger in their own relationships. They don't actually address it. They don't actually name it and speak to it. They kind of deal with it in a passive aggressive kind of way. So you've figuratively been slamming doors in God's face, right? You're mad, but you're not actually going to go to the Lord and say, I think you're wrong, because, well, obviously you know you're going to lose. And so you're just slamming the dishwasher loudly, hoping that God gets the picture. You say, Craig, that's stupid. Let me give you a Craig story so you can understand what I'm talking about. I remember the Lord did something one time in my life that I didn't like. It was hurtful. It wasn't what I thought should have happened. And I, I, I remember, and I was, I was a young man, but I remember in that moment I said, Lord, I'll still honor you, but I'll do it in my way. I'm, I, I won't sing in church. I won't do this. I won't do that. I know I'm still yours but you're only going to get the part of me that I want you to have. Because obeying you today with everything that I have, see God, I don't want to do that. That's some of you here today, isn't it? You know what God's Word says. You're just choosing to ignore that part of God's Word. You're slamming the cabinet on that part of God's Word. You don't have the guts to actually say, God, you're wrong. Why? Because you read the end of Job. And even if you didn't read it, you've heard me preach on it. You remember what happened right there. Job said, I'm sorry. God says, stand up like a man and let's have this conversation. Job said, oh, no, no. Now, why did God say Because Job had said, if only I could see you face to face, I could get this straight with you. Y'all give Job credit for something. The man had guts. He was stupid, but he had guts. If there was a mediator, then maybe. So God showed up, and Job backed up. What did Job say? He said, I had heard of you with my ear, but now. God, I'd heard about you, but now I know. And I don't want any more. Here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to back up. And I'm going to listen up. So maybe you read the end of the book of Job, and so you know better. You know better than to challenge God to a fight. But you're still sitting there going, ah, no, Lord, you can't. you can't do it that way. And, and this is what you're saying. You're wrong. Oh, You don't come out and say it, right? But folks, when you refuse to obey God's word, the reason you don't obey it is because you're saying, God, you don't know. But I know. Maybe you even cried out to the Lord. Maybe you cried out and said, God, this isn't what you were supposed to do. Oh, how many times have I tried to share the gospel with somebody who didn't want to hear God's word because something bad had happened in their life. And I don't want anything to do with a God who would let that happen. Folks, I want you to know that if it happened, God let it happen. I want to put that out there. The question, we've got to wrestle with is: When I will trust him. He doesn't need your permission. Why? Because he is God and you are not. It doesn't seem fair to you. Okay, the world doesn't revolve around you. You say, Craig, this isn't very nice. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm trying to be honest. And if you think I'm just like mean... Go read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, one of the most popular and best-selling Christian books of all time. What are the first words in the very first chapter of that book? Do you know what they are? These are the first words. It's not about you. That's the first words in the whole book. Rick Warren says if you want to figure out what God's will and God's plan is for your life, the first thing you got to understand is it's not about you. It's called God's purpose and God's plan. You're not the subject of the sentence. God is acting upon you. We can trust Him though, can't we? He works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do you believe that word? If so, then you can trust Him. But listen, He doesn't need your permission." God is God and you are not. Of course, it's interesting in Jonah's life that the thing he's so upset about is the fact that God showed mercy where he didn't want mercy to be shown. Is there somebody in your life today, right now, maybe a group of people even, that you just believe are beyond the Lord's ability to save? Perhaps your heart is so hard toward that particular group of people or that particular person, that you believe that if God were to save them, you would rather not serve a God who would save them. You know, in Romans nine fifteen, Paul quotes God's words to Moses. And what, Paul, or what God said to Moses is, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oftentimes, as we understand that passage of Scripture, we see it as a limitation on God's ability or God's willingness to extend grace. In other words, who are you to answer back to God what he can or shouldn't do? But I believe that for Jonah and probably for Moses and maybe even in Paul's words in Romans 9, the intention here was not to limit the grace and the mercy of God, but instead to expand the grace and the mercy of God. Imagine God looking at Jonah and using these exact same words. Jonah, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Who are you, O pot, to speak back to the potter? You have no right to tell me what I can or shouldn't do, because I am God, and you are not. If I choose to save to the uttermost, that is my prerogative. God doesn't need your permission. Because He is God and you aren't. The second thing this morning, God doesn't change. Some of you are going, boy, I hope this gets more encouraging. Eh. God doesn't change. Now listen, when we think about the changelessness of God, it is a good thing. God isn't moody or hormonal. God isn't fickle. God is not a teenage girl. Or a grown woman. Just another joke, just another joke. I know, I know. I'm up here by myself, so I think I can survive it. He's also not a man, so there you go, or a four-year-old kid. God is not human. He's not your husband who's frustrated about the ball game and so you got to be careful exactly what you might say. He's not your wife who's upset because the kids have been a nightmare. He's not your kid strung out on whatever steroid medication the doctor put him on to try and get him better which is terrifying he's none of those things he's god he is changeless that means we know exactly what we're going to get with god have you ever known somebody we just didn't know which person you were going to get right I I I'm not sure. So you you show up and you knock on the door and you're like, "All right, so if if like good John comes out, we're in a good place. But if bad John shows up, we're just going to leave this and we're going to go on." Right? Some of you have been that person, haven't you? Right? I I I, I Maybe I've been that person before. Probably. I definitely have. You know, so But with God, it's not like I knock on the door and go, I hope he's in a good mood today. When I knock on the door of heaven in prayer, I know the God that I'm going to get. Because he doesn't change. It was this change. Theologically, this is called the immutability of God. God is immutable. He does not change. It was this changelessness that caused Jonah to run in the first place. Though Jonah was in the wrong in his practice, Jonah was right in his understanding of God. Now listen carefully. Did you hear this? You can be right in your theology and wrong in your practice. Jonah was a great life group member. He would have been a great Sunday school teacher. Jonah was a great theologian, but a poor disciple at this point in his life. You ready for this? You can have all all the right answers and still be all sorts of wrong. You can have all the right answers and still be all sorts of wrong. See, Jonah knew that God was going to act mercifully. Why did Jonah know that? Because God is a merciful God. As a matter of fact, when he revealed himself to Moses there in the book of Exodus, in that same place where he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Right? He says that, I, I, I am God. I am, I'm a changeless God, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What does that mean? I am merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. He is all of those things. And when he came to Jonah and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to, that, to Nineveh, that great city, and I want you to warn them of my judgment. Jonah said, you're going to judge Nineveh? Yes! This is awesome. I can't wait. But God said, no, 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 I, I actually don't want to judge them, Jonah. So if you'll just go and preach to them, maybe this calamity can be avoided. And Jonah said, no, nah, nah, how about I don't? See, Jonah said, I, I like this idea of me watching hellfire and brimstone rain down upon Nineveh. And, and see, God, I know, I, I, just, I just got a hunch that if I show up, and if I tell them what you're going to do, and if I tell them that you're willing to forgive them, and if I tell them that you're willing to hold, withhold even, your hand of judgment. See, I, I suspect, Lord, that, uh, that this whole thing's going to turn in a direction I don't want it to go. See, Jonah knew. Folks, do you know that when you share the word of the Lord, when you share God's gospel, do you know that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Do you know that? Do you know there's never been a soul on this earth that has ever lived that cried out to the Lord for salvation whom God turned his back on? Do you know that? He is a changeless God. He does what He says He's going to do. Likewise, there's never been one who died apart from Christ, who did not experience the judgment of God, because He does what He says He's going to do. He is not fickle. He does not change. Do you know that that's a good thing? Why? Why? Because we know what we're going to get. He doesn't have to apologize for losing his temper or acting out of character because he never did. He never does. He never will. There's never going to be a video of God that surfaces on the internet and people go, That's not who I thought he was. Nobody's going to catch God on a hot mic saying something that's outside of his character. He always acts within his character. He doesn't change. And that's why Jonah's so angry. You see, Jonah wanted to change God. See, this is what idolatry is. Okay, We tend to think about idolatry as sort of bowing down to some wooden image, right? But idolatry is only an effort to create... A God that serves us. A God that exists in our image. We tend to build a God for us that does what we want that God to do. As a matter of fact, left unchecked by the Word of God, Jesus begins to look a whole lot like me. And He looks a whole lot like you too, doesn't He? Christmas is coming up and we see how we tend to project things into our own image. If you walk into... A Caucasian home, Santa Claus is usually white. If you walk into an African American home, Santa Claus is usually black. Why? Because we tend to project ourselves onto the things around us. And folks, white people tend to think of Jesus as white. Dark skinned people tend to think of Jesus as dark skinned. English speakers tend to pray, assuming that God speaks English. He doesn't, He just sort of speaks them all. God doesn't. Change. He's always God. And then finally, this morning, God is in control. Listen, some of you are going, Craig, I showed up today because my life's falling apart. And I didn't really need a theology lesson. What I really needed was six steps to help me get my mess together. Folks, I want you to know that until you get your understanding of God right, you can have all the right steps and you can still be wrong. God is in control, and that's a good thing. Now listen, Jonah built a hut to see if God would do what he expected. Now, the Bible says that Jonah entered on one side of the city, okay? So he entered from the west, and he went out of the city, and he sat down to the east. So what happens is, as Kevin preached last week, he comes in, he goes through the city. Am I going right east to west from the way y'all are looking? I think I got this right. And he goes to the east side. Is this like the east side to y'all? I'm backwards. I'm trying to figure out in a mirror. Okay, well, maybe he's on the other side. The point is he's on the east, okay? Um, He's on the east side of the city, and the Bible says he built a hut. Now, he's in the middle of the desert. It's a very arid country, so when he built a hut, he didn't have a lot of sticks. He didn't have branches or brush. Anything close to the city would have already been scavenged for all that, so people could use it for firewood. So he probably just used some rocks, some stones, He used some dirt, maybe some sand and some mud, whatever he could find. He pushes it all together, and he creates a hut to try and protect himself from the elements. And the primary element in this day and time is going to be, what, the sun in the desert. And why does Jonah build himself a tent or a hut? Jonah says, well, maybe, just maybe, I can sit here for 40 days. And maybe, maybe they won't repent, or maybe God will change his mind. Here's what Jonah's doing. He's popping popcorn and waiting for the show. Jonah is vengeful. He is angry. Remember, he's exceedingly angry. He's furious. And he's allowing that anger to eat him alive. That's a sermon all to itself, isn't it? Will your anger eat you alive? Imagine that he holds on to his anger so much that he's willing to sit there and stew in it for 40 days, hoping, praying, meditating, begging that maybe God is going to give him the fireworks show that he wanted. And God says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, Lord, just let me die. It's better for me to die than to live. And God says, "Do it do well? Are you good to be angry? Are you proud of yourself, Jonah? Jonah went out of the city, sat down, he built his little hut, When he got hot, God did a nice thing. God grew up a little plant for him. It came up. This is a miraculous plant. It's pointless for us trying to figure out which plant this was, okay? It doesn't matter. This is a a picture of God's miraculous work. God sovereignly appoints a plant to grow up, and it grows up, and it provides shade for Jonah. But the Bible says after just one day, God appointed a worm. Now, I thought it was funny as I read through some commentaries there are people who question whether or not a worm could actually do this those people have never had squash plants apparently because y'all i have grown the most beautiful squash you've ever seen and woke up the next morning to see all of it laid on its side dead god appointed a worm and the worm came as god's messenger of destruction that's something what ruined jonah's day a worm The Bible says, the worm came, attacked the plant, it withered, and when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. I read this week, I just read it one place, so if this isn't true, y'all forgive me, but I did read, read this week, there was a point in time when in, in some Islamic countries that this scorching heat was so bad and so significant and as the wind blew that it, it, it drained people so much and, and even brought about delirium to such a degree that people who committed crimes during these times of intense, scorching wind and heat, that their punishment could be lowered as a result of the effects of this weather condition on their lives. That, that their, their behavior was directly attributed to all the things that came about as a result of this win. In other words, God is beating Jonah up in a bad kind of way. And Jonah was faint. And once again, Jonah said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said, do you do well to be angry for the plant? The first time, Jonah didn't answer. But this time, Jonah stomps his foot and he says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. This is a four-year-old fit from a grown man, isn't it? Ugh, God just kill me. I don't want to do what you want. And the Bible says that the Lord gives Jonah no instructions, only questions. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah, you're pitching a fit over a plant. And yet, I shouldn't have pity on 120,000 persons this idea of not knowing their, their, their right from their, their hand from their hand, they're spiritually blind. Jonah waited, probably holding out hope that God would still judge Sodom or judge um, Nineveh like Sodom and Gomorrah. But see what Jonah did. Jonah blamed God. See, Jonah was angry, but why was Jonah angry? Because Jonah wanted to control God. Jonah doesn't want to submit to and serve the Lord. He wants a God who serves him. How many of us want a God who serves us? God, my marriage didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, God. Just kill me. God, I thought I did everything right, but my kids aren't the way I expected, Lord. Why did you do this? God, I worked hard and I got nothing to show for it. Who do you think you are? God is in control. And we don't always like that. But folks, can I tell you that it's a good thing? It's a good thing. God is in control and you are not. But listen, it's a good thing. No matter what happens, you can know that God allowed it and He is at work in it. Is it okay to be angry with God? It's not okay, but it's understandable. Isn't it? Don't we understand where Jonah's coming from? Haven't we all been there at some point? The vine grew up around us and we began to take credit for that thing that we had no control over. We began to serve the Lord as long as life was good. But when life got hard, we stomped our foot and said, just kill me, God. It's not okay to be angry with God, but it's understandable because we want what we want and we want it now. And so the answer that Jonah gets from the Lord is not much of an answer at all, but just a series of questions. I'm God and you are not, Jonah. And are you right to be angry? Perhaps it's not that much different than God's reply to Job. Who are you to question me? He is God and you are not. There aren't tight answers today. There's no no three-step plan because the book of Jonah doesn't end with a three-step plan. And we take our marching orders from God's Word. And the book of Jonah essentially ends this way. Will you trust Him? Will you serve Him? In times of plenty and in times of hardship, will you trust Him and will you serve Him? If it all went away today, would you trust Him and would you serve Him? Will you forgive the parent who hurt you? Will you trust Him and will you serve Him? Will you continue to love even when it's hard? Will you trust Him and will you serve Him? Will you pray for those who persecute you? Will you share the gospel with the person who's hurt you? Would you rejoice in the salvation of a heinous sinner? If God sent salvation rather than judgment, would you praise Him? This morning I come to you and I ask you, will you trust Him? What is the promise? The promise from God's word is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the promise? The promise from God's word is that He'll never leave you nor forsake you. What is the promise? The promise from God's word is that He's in control even when it doesn't feel that way. What is the promise? The promise is that He always hears when we call. What is the promise? The promise is that even if this world feels like it's spinning out of control, He has it right where He wants it. So I ask you, will you trust Him? Can I promise you that tomorrow will be better? No. Can I promise you that life will get easier? No. Can I promise you that God will always do what you think God should do? No. Why? Because He is God and you are not. But can I promise you that He'll never leave you? Yes. So I ask you this morning, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you showed up broken, looking for a way to put it all back together, can I give you this promise? Jesus is the answer. That though we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Jesus died on Calvary's cross for your sin and for mine, paving the way for you to be saved. See, because of your sin, you deserve hell just like I do, but because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we can have all of heaven's glory. God doesn't always act fair. The most unfair thing of all was our sinless Savior dying on the cross For our egregious sins. Jonah was mad because God didn't act as fair as he thought he should. And I'm here to tell you today. That you can celebrate that God is not a fair God. Instead he is a gracious and merciful God. Who offers you and me salvation. That we don't deserve it. And the promise of life everlasting. Will you trust him today? Will you trust the God that would save Nineveh? Trust that He can save you. We're going to sing in just a minute, and as we sing, I'm going to ask you to come forward if the Lord's leading you today. I'd love to talk with you about taking that next step of salvation. Perhaps you're like Jonah, though. Maybe you're a really good theologian. Maybe you're a good teacher, but you've become a terrible disciple. You have all the right answers, but you have all the wrong motives. Perhaps today you need to come not be saved. Perhaps today you need to come and repent. Lord God, forgive me. For I've thought my way was best. Would help me to trust you. Mold my will into yours. However the Lord's working in your life, as we sing, would you come? Pray with me. Father God in heaven, I pray you'd be at work within us this morning. I pray that your word would take root. It would change us. Inside and out. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us this morning as we sing.